NATO for trade. China Talk readers and listeners will recall that for the past few years, myself, Matt Klein, and David Talbot have written a series of essays advocating for a defensive alliance to counteract Chinese economic aggression. But let's be real, we were too lazy to write a real report about it. And then, out of the ether, Matt Goodman and Matt Reynolds of CSIS put together a fantastic 100-page report fleshing out the idea and presenting some very detailed case studies of past acts of Chinese economic coercion. Uh, Matt G is a senior vice president of economics at CSIS and has a long storied career in the executive branch. Matt R is also a fellow at CSIS and uh, spent a fair number of years on the Hill. Matt K runs the Overshoot uh, Substack and David Talbot, also joining us today, is currently at the Milken Institute. What was China talking why does China use economic coercion? I think that Beijing thinks that by uh, doing this kind of low level uh, messaging uh, or, you know, putting a little bit of pressure on uh, companies, whether from, um, you know, Korea or um, Lithuania or Australia and using its market power to try to send a message to these countries that uh, that they don't like uh, some behavior that they're engaging in, it typically is. Uh, something that defends China's perceived interests, uh, usually around, uh, obviously, if it's something to do with Taiwan, they're very sensitive about that. If it's about uh, the Dalai Lama, they're sensitive about that. And sometimes it is a little more serious violation in their case. Uh, it's about, um, in some way, detaining a Chinese citizen, like in the case of the uh, Huawei CFO, uh, Madam Meng, who was detained by the Canadian authorities, or uh, Korea installing a defensive missile system, then uh, Beijing uh, tends to respond by going after the um, economic commercial interests of those countries to send a message uh, to them that it's not happy and wants it to cease and desist. So we have five triggers you guys identify, political legitimacy, national security, economic security, territorial integrity, as well as like the Meng Wanzhou story, uh, uh, sort of foreign impact on PRC citizens. So what are the countries um, that have borne the brunt of this over the past decade or so? Our report looked at eight case studies of, of China's economic coercion, and those case studies spanned roughly the last uh, 13 years. Uh, so the countries that we looked at uh, were Japan, Lithuania, Mongolia, the Philippines, South Korea, Canada, and Norway. I think that is all eight maybe uh, i may have missed australia there um uh but what we see is that china prefers to pick on countries that are, are much smaller than itself at least in economic terms uh and then on those triggers you talk about yeah we, we identified five main triggers that kind of align with what china sees as its core interests so uh, i think there are a number of reasons why why china uses economic coercion you know it, it's to try to defend those those core interests but then also it sees uh, coercion as sort of a low-cost way to try to deter uh, future behavior uh, that might violate those core interests. I did find it pretty interesting that like the biggest, baddest country that the Chinese government targeted with this playbook was Japan all the way back in 2010. And almost seems like someone's learned their lesson that it's not necessarily the best idea to pick on, you know, the number two economy uh, at the time in the world in order to, uh, you know, try to try to use these sorts of tools to get um, to get your way. But anyways, let's walk through the tool set. What are some of the um, uh, most salient uh, economic as well as non-economic tools in the uh, PRC's toolbox 
Yeah. So what we what we see is that China uses uh, a variety of, of different tools to implement its uh, course of economic measures. Uh, broadly, what I would say that China most likes is to use import restrictions, and those import restrictions are often targeted at commodities. But we have seen China also use uh, export restrictions. Uh, in the case of Japan, that we just uh, that you just mentioned there, China cut off rare earth exports to Japan. You could also say that export restrictions were were used to an extent in the Lithuania case uh, because China effectively implemented a de facto economic embargo on Lithuania, but because trade was so minimal between Lithuania and China, it was sort of inconsequential. But then uh, China does like to pair its you know course of economic tools with other you know non-economic course of measures. So we've seen China use uh, nonviolent military coercion. Concerningly, they've been using hostage diplomacy, as you saw, uh, you know, with uh, the two Michaels in, in Canada, uh, but also in Australia. In the case of Australia, we saw uh, Australian nationals be detained in, in China and also, uh, you know, charges upgraded to uh, Australian citizens that were already serving uh, time in uh, uh, Chinese prisons. And we've also seen China use uh, diplomatic sanctions as well, cutting off diplomatic ties. Uh, and, and, you know, those tools sort of blur the lines so in the case of, of Norway. Uh, you know, they cut off diplomatic ties, uh, you know, that included cutting off uh, negotiations on a Norway-Chinese uh, uh, trade agreement. So you do see China pair these these tool, these economic tools with non-economic tools as well across the cases. Yeah, my favorite is the um, uh, the sort of like cultural and tourism ones where for a long time, uh, South Korean pop stars weren't allowed to, uh, you know, schedule uh, uh, schedule shows in the PRC. Um, and then the tourism restrictions are really interesting, right? Because they're like package tours, not necessarily like you're cutting off flights or you're stopping people just from like going to the country. I mean, it's kind of the same in the U.S. Like there's a type of person who likes to like tour on a bus. And then there's maybe a sort of uh, more independent minded folk uh, uh, who are open to, 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 to traveling alone. And so, you know, when when I was in in uh, South Korea and the Philippines sort of during these like awkward times, the, the Chinese people you would meet would be very different than like, you know, the 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 60 year old grandmas who are like really excited to drive around on a on a bus. Yeah. And that was that's also where, uh, you know, China kind of had an asymmetric advantage. So one of the things we also find in our, our report is that that, you know, China likes to target areas where it does enjoy this asymmetric advantage. Uh, in the case of tourism with Korea, I think, you know, half of overseas arrivals to South Korea for tourism uh, came from China. So that was an area where China could, you know, exert some uh, pain on, on South Korea without incurring a, a large cost itself. What's the track record here? How how on a sort of like tactical and strategic time horizon have these efforts ended up working out for the PRC? Yes, yeah, so this is one of the more surprising findings from our report is that we decided to look in to see how successful China has actually been with achieving, you know, uh, uh, what we you know, evaluated to be its, its policy objective in each case. And what we found uh, was that China really isn't that great at economic coercion uh, in the sense that even when China might, uh, you know, obtain its short term tactical uh, goal, that these economic coercive measures carry uh, longer term strategic costs uh, for China. So you can look at the case of of Japan, uh, you know, although uh, Japan did end up releasing uh, the fishing boat captain, uh, this initiated a years-long uh, initiative by Japan uh, to reroute its uh, critical mineral supply chain away from China towards Australia. And we've seen uh, Japan in the last 10 years reduce its dependency on China from 
upwards of 90% dependency down to closer to 50% dependency for rare earth imports. Um, you can look at the case of Australia as well. Uh, you know, China's coercion has pushed Australia uh, closer to the United States, uh, you know, in a military national security alignment. We saw uh, the AUKUS agreement being inked, I believe that was in uh, 2021. Uh, at the same time, Australia you know, never backed down on its calls for an investigation into the origin of COVID. Uh, and today, we've just seen, you know, recently this year, China is looking for uh, a way to sort of uh, normalize relations with Australia without Australia really making any concessions. Um, so you see this sort of across uh, the board in these cases that, uh, you know, a mixed outcomes at the tactical uh, level and then long term cost for China, at the strategic level. Yeah, I mean, I, it's it's an open question, probably outside the scope of this conversation, like to what extent the point of these measures was to, you know, get these foreign com- foreign countries in line in the first place, or was it more just a sort of domestic signaling effort to get people like riled up about something? I mean, I think that's like the very interesting you know, question here is if China's coercion, uh, you know, backfires so much and, and isn't that great at achieving, you know, the actual you know short term policy goal, why do they keep doing that? And we kept sort of talk about this in, in the report, and it's you know most likely probably because China perceives that there is some you know uh, deterrent effect that it it, it gets from uh, you know to use the, the cliche idiom that uh, you know circulating on this you know uh, killing the chickens to scare the monkey. So uh, we do concede that there probably is this deterrent effect, but it's it's very hard uh, to quantify that deterrent effect, right? Uh, you you don't know what decisions weren't made in a third country because uh, there was a fear. Of China's economic coercion, but what we wanted to do, sort of, sort of in the report, is point out uh, that a lot of times these economies that are targeted by China prove themselves to be much more resilient in the face of China's economic coercion than maybe they originally thought they would be. And so, in doing so, that should, uh, you know, lower the deterrent effect that China receives from its economic coercion if countries see there's not as much to be scared of as they, they may think. So, picking up on that, um, Matt G. Uh, you guys sort of talk about the two potential ways that the U.S. and the, I don't know, world really can um, can think about responding to these sorts of threats. Um, denial uh, or punishment? Uh, why, uh, in your view, is, is denial the way to go? We went into this project thinking that we were going to come out in a place of retaliation. You know, China's doing this to our friends. We need to push back and, and hit them back. And the more we looked at it, the more we found that wasn't going to be effective and wasn't going to be credible and wasn't what our partners partners wanted. Um, you know, China does this kind of coercion at such a low level that if we ended up uh, responding at that same level proportionally, it's probably not going to have much cha- uh, effect on their calculation. On the other hand, if we escalate, then it becomes quickly non-credible because how much of a cost are Americans really going to be willing to pay to help, you know, Philippine banana exporters or Australian Shiraz uh, exporters, particularly when we have competitive products, by the way. You know, when we talked to these eight countries, I mean, every one of them said, we really don't want the U.S. to retaliate because when the when the good kid leaves the playground, having punched the, the bully in the nose, uh, the bully turns on the, the other kids, the ones that he's been bullying, and they were afraid of that kind of reality with, with China going forward. So that led us to the other type of deterrence, um, which is the deterrence that comes from the uh, the bad guy thinking he's going to fail in his endeavor, um, and so denying uh, him what he's seeking, and and that involves, in our view, a combination of policies to help make target countries less vulnerable 
to China's coercion. That means giving them more trade options, uh, strengthening their supply chains, um, and um, you know, otherwise helping them get more resistant to Chinese um, pressure. And, uh, and then if they do get coerced, then the other tool is relief, which is um, helping them with either, could be just a statement of support, it could be a WTO case, or it could be even a compensation fund, which I know you guys have written about as well. But, uh, and I think we are in the same place that if you can offer uh, some support uh, to the victim country, then they feel you're on their side, you've got, got, you've got their back, and they're more likely to be willing to stand up to China's pressure so that's why we ended up in a place of denial rather than uh, punishment as the best way to uh, to deal with this over time. Not a panacea, not going to solve the problem, but at least over time uh, could could uh, force Beijing to recalculate uh, the, the the costs and benefits of this kind of persistent behavior. I guess one thing that's worth highlighting here, which you, you mentioned a little bit, but I think is, is important, is that the, the measures that China uses to coerce others do come at a cost to people in China. Th those costs might not be important to the people who made the decision, but they are nevertheless real costs in the sense of, you know, people like going on package tours to South Korea, and now they can't or it's heavily discouraged. You know, maybe they go somewhere else. Um, maybe that's their second choice or third choice, but you know that is a cost to them. Or if you know they're not allowed to buy Australian wine, maybe they can substitute with some French wine, which is what happened at the time. But maybe that's not what they wanted, or maybe it's more expensive or something of that nature. And so, you know, the way I kind of think about it is, it's a little bit like you're going on a hunger strike. You know, the Chinese government essentially like imposing a hunger, a very low cost hunger strike, but it's still a hunger strike on the Chinese people in the hopes that the people who you know would have sold them the food or whatever feel worse about it than the people who are losing out. And and the reason. Why I very much came to the view that you did as well that the you know the denial you you use the word denial not a word that came up but I, I I like that that framing of it is you know then you really concentrate the costs on the people who are imposing the coercion as opposed to people who are supposed to be on receiving it um, because it's going to hurt them either way um, but then if there's no benefit then it's really there's no you know why why even bother um, then it just seems like they're just shooting yourself in the foot. Yeah, I mean, I think this this point about cost is really important that the Chinese have demonstrated across the certainly the eight case studies we looked at that they have a very low tolerance for for cost. And that may be because of the domestic uh, dynamics that you're describing, Matt, uh, where, you know, they 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 have. A, 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 they have a population that is, uh, you know, not going to be happy about uh, excessive um action that is, you know, ultimately causes them as consumers or, or workers to, uh, to pay a real price. That's been a consistent pattern of, of China's behavior. And so there's, there's clearly a responsiveness to their domestic constituencies. Now that could change uh, if, if, the, if the calculations in Beijing are that the, the offending behavior is so uh, significant, like U.S. use of sanctions or, um, or export controls, or obviously in a Taiwan contingency, the stakes would be a lot higher. That behavior might change, but this is a really important point that I think people who are just only casually looking at these issues may not fully appreciate is, is how cost uh, intolerant China is. They, they just don't like to pay a huge price. Uh, that might change, but so far that's been the pretty consistent pattern. Yeah, for example, you did see them in the the case uh, with Canada uh, after the African swine fever decimated Chinese hog herds. They did lift uh, restrictions on imports of Canadian pork. Right. 
I think with Australia too, where they they blocked a lot of imports of Australian goods, but not for iron ore because that's the one they really couldn't get a substitute for. So you know, coal, sure, wine, barley, but not iron because they really can't get a replacement. I thought that was a fascinating finding, and one of the others that uh, I really um, have been brewing about since reading the report is this, um, you know, distinction between denial and punishment. Because uh, you know, in some of what uh, you know, Jordan and I have written, and, and you know, all three of us have written before, you know, we talked about tools to expand the, as you call it, the offensive toolkit as well. Whether that's expanding Section Two Three Two authorities to be able to incorporate U.S. allies' national defense in uh, U.S policy making around that with, you know, very strict uh, controls. But it, the fact that during your consultations that you heard from U.S. allies that that was not only um, uh, not of interest, but also like straight up unwanted is fascinating. I think there's also a really interesting overlap here with, uh, you know, the, the EU equivalent to the anti-coercion instrument where they didn't end up developing a compensation fund at all. And truly focused on, uh, you know, what you call deterrence by punishment. I pulled up a quote from an EU official saying, sometimes it's necessary to put a gun on the table, even uh, knowing that's not used day to day. This is an instrument's last resort. So it's I'm just, I'd love to, to hear more about how you reach this conclusion and sort of under what circumstances, if any, that you think a sort of more offensive or, or sort of punishment strategy would be warranted. The ACI in and of itself is, you know, fascinating uh, development in some ways is also a demonstration of the ways that China's economic coercion sort of blows back against it, right? If you remember, uh, ACI's adoption was accelerated by uh, China's economic coercion of uh, Lithuania. So that's just like another, you know, check in, in the box of the ways that China's economic coercion can backfire. Uh, but on that, I think, you know, a fundamental difference there with the EU's ACI and what the U.S. is looking, you know, we're proposing that the U.S. do here. Uh, is that the EU is operating in an area of, of primary deterrence. It, it's talking about, you know, attacks on the EU proper, which makes punching back a bit more credible. Something that we struggled with in our report is that, you know, our finding was that China's economic coercion is generally not directed at the United States itself. It likes to pick on our U.S. allies and partners. So in that sense, uh, we are in the extended deterrence domain. We're trying to extend our deterrence to our allies and partners. And that is, uh, makes it more difficult to signal credibility. And, uh, you know, one of the things we did in the report, we tried to adapt these concepts from uh, the deterrent literature that developed, you know, broadly in the national security sphere and apply it to the economic statecraft sphere. And in that, you know, one of the key components of deterrence is, is credibility. And, and without credibility, deterrence is going to fail. So if, if China is not going to believe that we're going to punch back uh, to protect Australian Shiraz producers, then that threat, you know, that not going to be deterred from taking the action against them. Uh, but they may be deterred in the sense that uh, if they target Australian Shiraz producers, we're going to help provide relief, help find new markets for those producers, and their coercion is not going to have an effect. And it's going to have all these negative downstream costs for China that they get no benefit for. So I think that was where, you know, we decided to go with the deterrence by denial over the deterrence by punishment, like you see. And the EU, and I will also say quickly here that the, that the EU has used sort of the the relief tools as well, especially with the case of of Lithuania. You did see the EU, you know, put forward this. Uh, I think it was like 130 million euro relief, like a uh, loan relief fund uh, for Lithuania. So I, I I do think that the EU also sees the value in there, and I would have liked to see 
uh, the ACI include more of those relief tools rather than focusing just on on the punishment uh, uh, tools. I think that's a uh, really fascinating. Thanks for for delving into that. One of the other uh, differences that I noticed in in your report that I thought was was fascinating was this really distinction between a more like basically what the approach is to multilateral cooperation around this, where I think for the reasons that you mentioned around uh, you know credibility, uh, suggested a more informal approach to allied cooperation, where essentially, you know, trying to um, uh, convince other countries to build their own domestic sort of, you know, mechanisms to respond to this in addition to whatever the U.S. response on might be, uh, or as in our, our foreign policy piece, we had talked about the construction of a collective fund. Uh, so we'd love to just, um, yeah, if you wouldn't mind diving a little bit deeper into how you just continue to flesh out how you landed on that approach to multilateral cooperation around sort of these anti-coercion tactics and kind of how you see that succeeding where something more formal might fall short. Yeah, I think you know, one thing we kept going back to and thinking about how to multilateralize this, and that's another reason also why we, we landed on, on relief over punishment more is the sense that we felt that relief would be uh, uh, more e- easily multilateralizable than uh, a strategy that would require countries to join together to threaten to punch back uh, against China. I mean, you've seen, uh, you know, allies and partners uh, in third countries, you know, ask, you know, not to have to choose between the U.S. and China. So again, that's why we think this more relief-oriented, resiliency-oriented strategy uh, will be more easily multilateralizable uh, than one focused on uh, punishment. And then the sort of the other thing that we were thinking about here is that, uh, you know, what we found and we kept coming back to and seeing in the literature is that speed is very important to it, like a sanctions busting strategy that, that sanctions often, uh, you know, lose their effectiveness over time as new markets are found uh, and new, uh, you know, suppliers are found. Uh, so what we want to do is make sure that relief gets to the target country when they're most vulnerable to acquiescing to China's demand. Uh, and if you have a situation where you need to get agreement with, uh, you know, the G7 countries in order to release that funding, then it might take more time, right? And we're, we're not saying don't work with the G7 countries. We want to, to work together, but don't let that hold up the relief that needs to get to the, these countries. Uh, so that's why we landed on the more informal multilateral grouping as well. Yeah, the current stalemate at the WTO DSB is another, another key example. You know, I mean, one thing I'm wondering and just thinking about in the experiences that we saw recently is, is part of the reason why allied coordination is helpful is because, you know, I think partly probably one of the values that I would imagine Chinese policymakers might expect to get from their course of strategy is by playing various allies against each other. So for example, in the case of you know Australian wine, which is how my attention first got out of this, you can see that you know the French government has been pretty consistently among the more like pro-Chinese governments among what one might call the advanced democracies and it's possible that one of the reasons is because of this belief that, and I don't think it's unique to France, but, you know, well, if they lose a market, then we can get a market and, you know, playing everyone else off against each other. I know this was an issue during the, um, you know, the Trump era trade conflicts where the Chinese response wouldn't necessarily be to raise tariffs on U.S. goods, but simply to lower tariffs on everyone else's exports, for, you know, to kind of drive a wedge. And, uh, you know, I guess part of the reason I think it really more sturdy multilateral approach would be helpful is to prevent that. And and if you don't have that kind of agreed in advance, it's harder potentially to kind of get that coordination there and avoid this, uh, you know, in other words, the, this, the denial strategy might not work as well as one would hope. Um, 
especially if you don't have a compensation fund, but even if you did have a compensation fund, um, if other producers in other countries might say, well, this is a good, you know, sort of just looking at it from a very mercantilist perspective and saying, well, now's our chance to, uh, you know, gain some market share. We definitely thought about that and, and, and mentioned it in, in the reports as one of the, you know, ways in which China's economic coercion really you know, works against U.S. interests is that it does divide U.S. allies and partners. You see, you do see, you know, French wine exports go up you see, when Australian Shiraz is targeted. You see the same thing happen with U.S. coal, I, I believe. Uh, in that case, U.S. coal exports to uh, China went up when Australia's coal exports uh, went down. But I think, you know, in a lot of cases, because they're targeting commodities, that backfilling, while it is problematic, can be overcome, you know, if you are accelerating the market adjustments that are taking place already naturally in the face of China's economic coercion. So you, you do see this to go again to the Australia example. You see, well, you know, exports to China go down. They're largely made up with exports to, I believe it was Japan, South Korea, and India. Uh, and so there was a study released by uh, the Australian Treasury that we cite showing that although the value of Australian exports to China went down by $4 billion, uh, they saw increases in uh, you know, the value of trade to third countries by $3.3 billion. So the result was you know, a net loss of $700 million, which really came out to just 0.25% you know, of Australia's total value of, of trade. So while it is problematic, I, I still think that a relief-oriented strategy, uh, you know, will provide benefits and help, you know, the targeted countries, uh, you know, stand firm against China as an economic coercion. That was another one of your findings that really surprised me was just what the actual scale of the damage was. You know, in our, no, sorry, I just I think I'm going back and forth between the two studies because I think it really helps draw out some interesting, interesting comparisons to this compare and contrast, but. You know, the piece that we wrote, you know, focused as well, had the broader, broader applications to focus as well as a compensation fund in response to losses from Russia sanctions. And then kind of applying that same, uh, you know, same compensation fund to help address some of the anti-coercion, you know, political dynamics that we're talking about here. But it was, it was striking to me that when you guys actually like delved in and did the research on what the losses were, that the scale was much smaller and in some ways much more manageable through a, you know, it, you know, arguably lessens the need for, you know, for this multilateral cooperation that we discussed in terms of feeding into this conversation one, because the numbers are just like a lot lower than, than I was expecting. Yeah. We were quite surprised by that, um, as well. And, and, you know, we didn't do a systematic analysis of, of the cost. We were relying on sort of, you know, secondary uh, sources there, but what you do find is that that market adjustment does seem to really uh, help offset the cost of China's economic coercion and the fact that China, you know, it does well. It's targeting smaller countries, smaller economies than China, which is obviously most of the the world. It is going after largely advanced economies like Australia and Canada, who do have you know the capabilities to offset some of those costs. So we saw uh, Canada. Um, you know, release, I think it was 13, or 19 million Canadian dollars of relief to Canadian farmers. So hypothetically, when you're looking to provide, you know, this investment fund that we recommend the U.S. set up, you're going to be already, you know, just like a force multiplier to tools that countries that are targeted already have uh, in place. It does, it could get more expensive, hypothetically, when you're dealing with countries that are not 
quite as developed. And you do have to think about also, and this is something we talk about, uh, you know, who who is what countries is the United States going to provide uh, this sort of assurance to? Uh, you know, is it going to be limited to some set of allies and partners that will be expanded? Poor countries that probably will be are going to be more vulnerable to China's economic coercion. So these are also things you have have to think about as well. So like when, when, when I know you guys are, are engaging with the Hill and trying to talk them into sort of supporting some sort of compensation fund. And it's like, you know, it's much easier to ask for the five million or 50, 50 million dollar version of this than it is the 50 billion dollar one, which, you know, when you think about the the Russia contingency, like the, the big one equivalent, which is where I think, you know, this this sort of thinking may have the most potential, um, uh, you know, positive deterrent impact to stopping World War Three is to kind of build that economic sanctions coalition, which you'd hope would be um, would be, you know, another reason for Beijing not to be interested in, in, in starting something really ugly with Taiwan. I'm curious, um, Matt G and Matt R, what, um, uh, you know, what lessons from this sort of uh, economic coercion story and the and the sort of de- uh, denial versus deterrence um, uh, framework apply to uh, the G7 trying to make as clear as possible to Beijing that, um, you know, an economic blockade or an invasion would be something catastrophic for the Chinese economy. The G7 leaders are very focused on this set of issues and trying to send a message to Beijing that they uh, that they see their coercion, that they're concerned about it, that they're going to respond uh, collectively. Um, you know, how far they're willing to go um, in the case of these sort of historic cases of fairly low level coercion um, is, is um, you know, is, is the question we were kind of grappling with. We thought the more credible approach would be not to retaliate, um, but to, uh, to but to provide you know limited amounts of relief, um, and uh, meanwhile to work on you know strengthening the resilience of of our partner economies. Um, you know, in the case of Russia or in the case of some kind of uh, China Taiwan contingency, you know the stakes would be a lot higher, and then I think you might be looking at you know a a, a bigger uh, set of tools and and ones that were sharper. And so that's uh, no question uh, that that that's a um, something that you know that the G7 and beyond will be probably doing things that are go well beyond the sorts of um, tools and and responses that we were looking at in our in our uh, report. I also just want to connect, you know, our report to what you guys wrote about it in, in your piece about. Uh, the Freedom Fund, you know, we kind of keyed in on a, on a similar insight that you guys came to is that countries in these scenarios, you know, especially when you're asking countries to retaliate, uh, you know, often they'll have, uh, you know, they'll be asked to bear unequal costs, right? So some countries may have hold choke points over Russia or China that others don't. So in order to get buy-in, yeah, you're going to have to look at probably trying to spread those costs around in a more equal way. And we came to the same conclusion, right, when looking at building a coalition to retaliate against China, you know, Australia, it would have, you know, wasn't willing to cut off iron ore exports to China. Uh, when China targeted Australia, why would it be willing to cut off iron ore exports, you know, when China targets Lithuania? It's just not a, a credible uh, scenario. So I think I thought that was an interesting connection between our, our papers. Yeah. I'll also add, looking back, you know, a little over a year later, it is disappointing to see that in fact, European and Japanese and Korean exports to Russia have rebounded relatively substantially, especially if you include what's likely um, 
know, redirected exports through places like Kazakhstan and Armenia and Belarus. And in fact, there was an article I saw in the, in the FT a couple of weeks ago where apparently the U.S. actually asked at the G7, we should just get rid of, we should ban all exports to Russia, except maybe like medical supplies or something. And every, every other member of the G7 said no. And my thought reading that was off. Only you'd listen to us back in March of 2022. Um, you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't, you know, have as much reason to object about this, but they're probably looking at it and say, well, this is billions of, you know, tens of billions of, of, uh, revenue dollar, um, or Euro. Uh, and, um, yeah, it's unfortunate that if you don't have that piece in place, that sooner or later, the willingness to, you know, cut back on your willing, you know, I mean, it's sort of the inverse of, of this economic coercion, but, um, you know, it, it, I think reinforces the, the, the need for maintaining the domestic political, um, consensus in favor of whatever your foreign policy is going to be is you need to have some kind of compensation fund one way or another. And so looking at it, you know, if one were to look ahead of, as, as you were talking about, a more large scale form of coercion, not the smaller stuff that we've seen so far, then I think it really increases the appeal of having some kind of credible denial mechanism, because otherwise I think we've seen that people are just not willing to put up with a lot. Just as, just as it seemed like Chinese consumers are not willing to put up with very much, it also seems like that's just as true everywhere else in the world. Um, and so you have to find some way around that. One question that you broached in the report that I also thought was fascinating, another thing that we we talked about at length, um, was this you know, delineating between U.S. economic coercion and China's economic coercion. Because obviously, you know, it's a tool that the U.S. uses frequently as well. And curious how, over the course of your consultations, you heard from partners about sort of views between how these things are distinguished because obviously, I mean, the, the EU ACI, you know, was, you know, the explicit reference was made to the U S as well in that. Um, but then, um, yeah, so both, I guess I do two, two questions here, really one, how that played out in your, in your consultations. And then second, the conclusion you reached in your report, which I thought was a very, um, accurate and nuanced way of distinguishing between these, these two different forms of coercion. Well, uh, you're right that um, the U.S. does use coercion, and we say that in our report, and you know you hear it a lot from uh, partners. You're also right that the EU anti-coercion instrument was originally actually targeted the United States with um, following the Trump tariffs, um, and uh, it, it sort of swung uh, more towards the China problem as they were developing it. Um, but there's clearly concern in Europe, there's concern in Asia about some of the things we do. But as we say in our report, yeah, the big difference is that we uh, in the U.S. Um, apply uh, coercion according to a set of, um, first of all, sort of more universal objectives like trying to deal with uh, proliferation problems or, or uh, human rights or uh, invasion, preemptive invasion of neighboring countries. Um, whereas China's uh, coercion is, is usually targeted at some, you know, China's specific, but fairly narrow interest about, you know, Taiwan or about um, the Dalai Lama or something. Um, and uh, so that's that's one big difference in sort of the uh, what what the coercion is aimed at, at addressing. Um, then there's uh, the way it's done, uh, because the U.S. does use a set of laws and procedures uh, and sort of a transparent approach according to rule of law and with the ability to appeal and so forth, that is very distinct from the way China has uh, used its coercion to date. China's creating some of those laws and formal processes on the books, but in practice, they've been using this more informal 
um, sort of deniable a type of coercion in the past, which is really, in a way, um, you know, a, a, a different kind of problem uh, for the global system. Um, and so, um, you know, so so there's no question that uh, that that uh, that the the U.S. does use a course of tools um, and uh, that our partners, you know, have their concerns about those in some cases. But uh, but we think that the both uh, the objectives and the 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 methods and means by which the U.S. does this are, are completely different from the ones China uses. And, and we think, you know, are are not really comparable in a way. So let's close on uh pathways forward. Um, so you uh, identified a number of things that the executive branch can organize around without necessarily congressional um, and congressional movement. There are all these tools that currently exist that you could um, coordinate in a COERCOM, which is a nice little, uh, nice little wrinkle there. Um, stuff like uh, export-import bank work, sovereign loan guarantees, tariff reductions, um, you know, the Development Finance Corporation giving you some political risk concerns or what have you. Um, but you've also seen a number of uh, Congress people kind of get excited about doing something um, uh, from the Hill on this, uh, you know, on this direction. Do you want to, um, you know, maybe give us a, a survey of the different approaches that you've seen pl- proliferate on uh, on Capitol Hill? And, you know, I don't know, pick your favorite or sort of handicap where you think the um, you know, the 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 um, the dynamics are around, um, you know, setting up a, a, a sort of bucket of funds or, or some other, um, you know, legislatively driven uh, uh, activity that could uh, uh, reinforce the, um, the the deterrence that we've been speaking about for the past hour. Well, actually, what strikes me and Matt uh, Reynolds may want to add to this as well. But what strikes me in looking at these various proposals, there's there's a version of a bill on the House side sponsored by um, Democrats, uh, Barra and Meeks and uh, Republican Tom Cole, uh, that is, you know, surprisingly aligned in a way with our approach in the sense of um, trying to um, have mechanisms of relief, of uh, helping uh, targeted countries um, with, um, you know, more foreign aid, um, export financing, sovereign loan guarantees, some of the things that you mentioned that we have in our report as well, allowing them um, preferential access to our market. Um, now, the one thing that this bill and then on the other side, on the on the Senate side, there's a bill co-sponsored by Todd Young, a Republican of Indiana, and um, Senator Coons of Delaware, a Democrat of Delaware, um, you know, similarly have, I think, similar uh, provisions in both. Uh, they do uh, both have the possibility, I'm reading now from a summary of the, of the Barra Meeks Cole uh, bill that says, you know, gives the... Um, the possibility of increasing duties on imports uh, from foreign adversaries committing economic coercion. So they do include sort of retaliatory uh, tools. And I guess our answer to that would be, you know, that's understandable that you want to put that tool in the toolkit. Um, and there may be a need for it if China sort of breaks pattern and starts escalating in the way and being willing to pay more of a cost by imposing higher levels of, of coercion. Uh, then you might really want that tool. But based on what it's done to date, we don't think that that tool is going to be all that useful. But having it in the toolkit um, and showing that you're you're willing and ready to to do something like that um, is is understandable um, from a congressional perspective. Yeah, I'll, I'll say, I mean, we're 
we're happy to see all, all the interest, uh, you know, in, in countering China's economic coercion in, in some ways. It timed really well with the release of our, our report that we're getting, that there's this issue is getting so much attention right now. But I would just say, you know, one thing that I think is really missing from, uh, you know, the response so far is just, uh, you know, a re-engagement in, in, you know, free trade agreements. That, I think, would go a long ways to counter China's economic coercion. Uh, because, again, you know, one of the key findings in our report is that you do see these you know market adjustments happen naturally in the face of China's economic coercion, and having having those you know deeper economic relationships with our allies and partners uh, will decrease China's influence you know relatively vice versa the United States. So that's that's one big missing piece so far. If I could just uh, footstop that, um, I I think this is one of the key uh, tools that we need both to respond to China's coercion and uh, to pursue our broader interests. That is negotiating more free trade agreements with our partners. And we spend a lot of time in the CSAS economics program looking at U.S. economic strategy in the Indo-Pacific region, which is kind of where the money is and where the, the rubber hits the road on U.S.-China economic co competition. And, you know, we think it's absolutely critical for U.S. strategic interests both to um, pull our, our partners closer in uh, to us because this is what they really want from us. They want more trade, they want more access to our market, um, but also to, you know, as a tool of responding to China's economic coercion, absolutely critical. And I think both in Congress and in the administration, frankly, they ought to be looking harder at, um, at, at how we get back into the game of negotiating trade agreements. Politically challenging as that can be, um, I think it's just vital to our strategic approach to these issues. Any sort of thoughts on the you know rumblings around a, a U.S.-Taiwan free trade deal? It seems like there's a little more room for this than there maybe was a few years ago now. Yeah, definitely. I think that the um, U.S. Is, is looking seriously at doing something more on trade with Taiwan. You know, that was always a problem historically, not only for, um, you know, political reasons, but also uh, because of some of Taiwan's own economic practices and, and, and the Tsai government has has tried to take on some of those issues to position uh, this as something that um, could be actually turned into an actual uh, trade uh, agreement of some kind. So there are active um, discussions underway. And I think probably it's, it's likely that, that that's going to be one of the first uh, things whenever the U.S. does get back into really negotiating something like traditional trade agreements that's going to come through the hopper. It's, it's definitely more uh, politically and economically feasible than it once was. But there are other bilaterals like with Japan, with with the Philippines, with other uh, key partners in the region that also could be conceived of. And and then, you know, but none of that, in my view, is a substitute for ultimately the U.S. leading a high standard, comprehensive regional trade negotiation in the region like the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, and I think we do need to get back in that game eventually. So I. I felt bad asking you guys for a song about economic coercion. Um, so I asked ChatGPT and I got some terrible suggestions. Um, Pink Floyd Money, a song about the pursuit of wealth and corrupting influence of money. It can be interpreted as a critique of the capitalist system, an exploration of the ways economic coercion can be used to manipulate and control people. That was the first suggestion. I mean, I don't know. Uh, but, uh, anyways, uh, Matt G, Matt R, any, uh, any songs to send us off here? Well, I always think, uh, the mob when I think of economic coercion, uh, or with coercion in general. So, uh, 
I guess I would go with the the intro song to The Sopranos. I'm going to let the younger folk figure that one out. I think uh, you wouldn't want my suggestions from the uh, the Beatles or Elvis Presley or something. So, but I will oh think no, totally, it. absolutely. I've been doing a lot of songs from like the 1920s and 30s. Actually, this is uh, even even before your time, Madgy. Maybe maybe you're the devil in disguise, since it uh, since it's since dangerous and it's proving unsuccessful. I don't know. Thanks so much for being a part of China Talk. You look like an angel. Walk like an angel, talk like an angel, but I got wise. You're the devil in disguise, or yes you are, devil in disguise. Oh, yes, you are.